1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her, go subscribe.
1: Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today, I have the honor, privilege, and pleasure to interview Andrew Ademi. Andrew is the founder of AAA Solutions, a business strategy, workplace culture, and diversity, equity, and inclusion firm helping small businesses and nonprofits. Andrew, you know, it has a lot of wisdom for us today, and I can't wait to get into it because he's gone through some obstacles in his life. He's encountered challenges. He's overcome them inside and outside of the workplace. Welcome to the show, Andrew.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege.
1: Andrew, let's get right into it. So we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I hear people talk about these acronyms and, and what these things mean, but I think for us to really start talking about justice and seeing the way forward, we have to start with a working definition. What does equity actually mean?
0: When I think about equity, I think about custom tools and resources. I think about things that allow people to remove barriers, overcome obstacles, and ultimately uh, have a fair playing ground in the workplace.
1: So, for example, when you say tools and resources, Give me an example. What do you mean?
0: So I had a client who had an employee who left the organization and he uh, had an accident and became visually impaired while he was separated from the company. A couple months later, uh, he reached out to the organization and wanted to come back to work. He left on good standing, uh, so they wanted to figure out how they could make it work. So they worked with me to figure out, hey, what reasonable accommodations can we make? And uh, when I think about equity, I think about the line of uh, discussions that myself and the client had where we said, hey, there's going to be different types of materials. This individual is going to need at his cubicle to do his work just as effectively as the person next to him who does not have a visual impairment. So when you think about equity, it's saying, hey. Not every tool, not every resource is going to add equal value to everyone. So we can't just say, hey, everyone gets the same computer because we want to be equal. Well, equal may not allow that individual to be able to show up at his highest level of performance within your organization. So I always encourage leaders to try to be intentional with thinking about how do you remove obstacles for your team and how do you give them all custom tools and resources they need to be the most productive and the most engaged
1: at work? who's deciding who gets what? I know this is such a big area and it's, it's, you know, it has its own layers of complexities. So who decides, when I think about an organization, I think about so many individuals with different needs, who decides who gets what? And what are the challenges around deciding?
0: Great question. So a couple of things I'll share. Number one, you talk about the complexity of this, and it is complex because it can very quickly bleed into a legal matter. It's obviously HR focused as well. So what I would say is some of the complexities and some of the things to think about or challenges is how do you ensure that you're getting legal advice and counsel? I am not a lawyer, so nothing I say is going to be legal advice or should be deemed as legal advice. You should always check with your internal uh, legal person or general counsel, if you have somebody externally to verify that you're not breaking any rules or violations there. But in terms of whose responsibility it is, it's it's the leader, right? Starting at the CEO, everything rises and falls on leadership, right? So uh, that leader has to set the tone with their direct reports, where they're intentional with meeting with those individuals regularly, having growth discussions and conversations to figure out what do your direct reports need to do their job best. Right, Somebody may be going through a divorce and their circumstances have changed and now their schedules need to adjust because they're now a single parent where they were married before. That means they can't go to that work event on Friday at 6.30 p.m. anymore, even though they've been doing that. So one thing that that leader could do in that example to remove that barrier is select someone else to be able to fill in that role. Right. So just simple little things like that demonstrate to your direct reports that, okay, I'm going to have a custom approach with each individual to help them succeed. Now they've seen that behavior and then you lay that expectation for them to model that behavior with the next line of leadership. And that's how it trickles down all the way throughout the organization.
1: Mm, I love that. And I can see how. People will feel included and they will enjoy their workspaces if they know that their needs are being met. And I also see how busy leaders are. You know, they don't have time to do what they're supposed to do, much less take a customized approach. What are the skills that are needed to be able to handle such a tall order? Because I want us to get into like these practical solutions because I think sometimes we, we tend to keep it so high level that people get overwhelmed in terms of where do I actually start? They're thinking, I'm frustrated, I'm overwhelmed. I have so many things to do. I want to be an inclusive, equitable leader, but I'm just overwhelmed. So what skills have you observed from leaders who are getting it right?
0: Essentially, there's two things I would recommend intentionality and empathy, those are typically two ingredients that I see with leaders who are doing this well. You're always going to be busy, right? But you make time for what's important. So one of the tools that I talk about when it comes to intentionality is the 80-20 principle, also known as the Pareto principle, where it basically just talks about how usually the majority of your results can come from a minority of inputs. So I always talk about how can you carve out 20% of your time during the week, To be intentional with culture, right? You look at statistics and Gallup reports, and everything's pointing towards organizations need to have better workplace cultures. Leaders know it's important, but they still suck at it. Why is that? Because they're busy and they haven't been intentional with carving out the time to invest in culture, right? So now, when I say 20% of your work week, does it actually have to be 20%? No. The approach towards, hey, How can I ensure that I'm using the first 15 minutes of my hour check-in with my team to connect with them personally? How can I ensure that we're having weekly team meetings where we're doing something that is a bonding activity of some sort? How can I carve out time to write handwritten notes for people's birthdays and anniversaries? Those little things add up. And sometimes it just takes calendaring that out, literally carving out the time on the calendar and almost doing a time audit, if you will. What I would also say when we talk about intentionality, if a leader is truly struggling that much with incorporating it, you either are not managing your time wisely, right? Or you are not understanding the true value that comes with that. And with empathy, it just comes down to uh, really being able to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and really ensuring that you are self-aware, know your emotions, how you're feeling, your triggers, have, have a good understanding of self but then you're able to relate and interact with the person you're communicating with in an effective way. So those would be two things that I would say are common with leaders that do it well, and then also a practical tool with the eighty twenty principle.
1: I love that because, you know, carving out that time on your calendar, it's just like planning anything else, but I've never heard it that way, where it's like, okay, we're planning out time for culture, specifically for culture-related activities, So that's really powerful. Uh, What inspired you to do this work? What's your equitable story?
0: Yeah, so my journey was interesting. So I wrote a book called The Circle of Leadership that came out in the summer of 2020. And that was on culture, how to create and leverage culture. One of the chapters within that book is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And with the events that happened in 2020, that very quickly became my most sought-after Topic to train and consult around. So there's a why behind the culture book, and there's a why behind the DEI work specifically. And I'll I'll start with DEI uh, why. Uh, And really, I would say it was the George Floyd murder. I would say reinforced it. I've been doing this DEI work for over three years now, but when that happened, I realized that I was almost starting to get numb to the unarmed black men getting killed at the hands of police. And I started to reflect and, and ask myself, why have I gotten so numb to that? Why am I okay with that? Even though I'm doing this work and I know it's not okay, it's, it's happened so often. And sometimes it can be a helpless feeling that it would just leave me kind of stagnant. And uh, I have three little kids, two boys, four and a half year old and, and uh, a nine month old. And at that time, I just had my son. And I remember thinking, wow, if I don't do something about this, when he's my age, he's going to be experiencing the same things. And for some reason, that was the one that I hit home where it's like, this is literally a topic I'm willing to die over. Like, I'm, I'm willing to, to give all that I can give to just even move the needle a little bit in this situation, just so the hopes of the next generation doesn't have to have a situation where it's even possible for them to get numb to seeing people that look like them being killed. Right, so mm-hmm. I, I think for me, that was a huge kind of battery pack on my back that really encouraged me to to go keep going with this work.
1: That's deep, like you started to get numb. Wow,, Whew. that's a deep one because that numbing feeling, and when I hear you say that, it's almost like, well, you know, this atrocity has happened, and let's just keep it moving. Life goes on, and I feel like that is a feeling that is circulating in a lot of workspaces right now for various reasons. And to be able to activate or move from that place of being numb or feeling numb or just getting tired of hearing the same things over and over and over and over, what helped you to move? Like what was that connection to take you from being in that numb, frozen, place to thawing out and saying, okay, I got to get more in touch with my feeling about this topic and I'm going to actually do something about it.
0: Yeah, it took a perspective change and then knowing the impact that I could have. So I'll start with the perspective change. I serve on the board of organization called Can I Be Real? And Mark Hardy is the executive director of that organization. They're doing some great things. And uh, he uh, and I worked together to create kind of the flagship program, which is called My Plan. It's It's a training that basically equips and empowers people to create a plan of action around a social justice issue they're passionate about. And it's such a simplified approach to doing the work. And he said something one time. He said, you know, it's not necessarily my job to change the world. That's not what I'm trying to do. You know, if you look at it that way, it could be overwhelming and that can leave you in a position where you feel helpless. He said, my goal is to change one person. He said, can I can I change one person? And he's like, yeah, everyone can change one person. So he's like, if I change one person, I've done my job. That was his shift of mindset to go from helpless to hopeful. And I've carried that with the work that I'm doing now where it's like I just need to impact one person. I just need one person after my training to come up and say they're changed. And I've done my job, even even if it's a room of 100. So I would say that is a big thing that I would share. Just try to impact one person and then being skilled at it. I started to get feedback where people are like, you know what? I did a training one time and a police officer came up to the executive director who put on the, the training and said this was the first time I did not leave a DEI training feeling guilty for being a white male. He was like, thank you. Andrew did a tremendous job. That almost brought me to tears when she shared that feedback with me because that's why I'm doing this work.
1: That is amazing. And, and I love it. I did an episode with another gentleman called Michael Fosberg, and he talked about how to have conversations around race and identity. And I love it so much because so many times we do hear these situations where people are like, oh, they hear the word diversity, equity, and inclusion or a DEI acronym. And it's just like, oh, not this again. I mean, I even had a colleague who was about to do a training and literally the management team said they would not show up. So to hear someone say that after, you know, your presentation, it says a lot. I think we have to have really honest, genuine conversations where people aren't running away from how to move forward and find solutions. So with that said, what is the status quo among DEI professionals? Like what are DEI professionals getting wrong?
0: There's a few things. So what comes to mind, a lot of the clients I work with have had a DEI consultant before and it didn't work for whatever reason. That tells me something. That means there's a lot of bad practice going on and a lot of ineffective results or wherever the breakdown is happening, it's happening often. So a lot of times I'm not only having to battle people's initial perceptions of DEI, I'm also potentially having to battle someone else who came in to fix it and maybe made it worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I would just share that um, a couple of things. The way I approach DEI is through the lens of business, culture, and DEI. A lot of people in the space approach it just from a scientific standpoint or just from a higher education standpoint, which may be good for the audience they're speaking to. But unfortunately, a lot of that I see gets brought into corporate America with a lot of the leadership and the way people run businesses. they need to know how this impacts their business. Why does this really matter in their company? How does this impact the bottom line? What metrics are being moved by me allocating resources to invest in DEI? The, uh, there's a lot of White men in leadership roles who need to hear that to be fully committed. And I think that is oftentimes missed by DEI practitioners, not be able to link that. I'd also say a lack of using data driven strategies. Uh, Everything that I do is always data driven. Why? Because numbers don't lie and they add value, they add clarity, security, uh, and credibility, in my opinion, right? That doesn't mean you make this DEI work all about numbers because you still have to have the stories, you still have to have the honest and tough and crazy conversations, but you have to mirror that with how does this work in the business world? So I would just encourage DEI practitioners to use data however, however way that, that you can to ensure that you're talking about how it impacts the business, how it impacts the bottom line, in addition to how it impacts people on a more personal and emotional basis.
1: I love that. Yes. Use the data, help people, And stop screaming. Can we tell them to stop screaming? (laughs) Can we tell them to stop screaming? Because no one transforms through yelling and screaming. Okay, so I want to play fill in the blank, Andrew. Fill in the blank. You are the DEI consultant in an equitable workspace. Let's just imagine twenty thirty you know, everything is where it's supposed to be. Work organizations are doing all the things related to equity and, and equitable work culture. So in an equitable workspace, everyone is fill in the blank.
0: Uh, everyone is safe.
1: Wow. Elaborate.
0: Yeah. So when I think about an equitable workplace, I think about a place where people think the culture is fair, where people feel valued, they feel seen, and they feel respected. And you usually don't have any of those things. I have mentioned if somebody doesn't feel a sense of safety with their workplace, it's a core need as a human being, let alone in the workplace. One of the topics I teach on is psychological safety. And a lot of organizations are not getting that right. They're not creating safe spaces. So I imagine an equitable workplace being one where somebody feels safe to be themselves. And I think it's fair and that they're going to have a great shot uh, at growing and doing better things within the workplace.
1: Excellent. I think that is definitely a starting point. When I feel safe, I know that it's easier for me to be vulnerable and to receive feedback and to take corrective advice, even if I don't like it. So I think that's an excellent starting point. Your book is really a culmination of business, leadership, and entrepreneurship. And as we're working towards a different workplace, environment, culture, even innovation, a lot of times we're lacking ideas on how to shift perspective. You talked about the whole aspect of being able to shift your perspective to get you out of that numbing situation or that numbing feeling. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that are numb in the workplace. So if you could think about how you see entrepreneurship specifically, you know, working in organizational cultures to, to bring about this change. Tell me what do you see or how do you see the future being impacted with the skill of entrepreneurship in the workplace?
0: Mm, mm. So I made it an entrepreneurship. And
1: corporate innovation
0: from indiana university and one thing i found very interesting about their program was the aspect that they didn't just leave it in entrepreneurship they were intentional with saying it's entrepreneurship and corporate innovation and the the more removed from college i get the more i realized how great of an idea it was to include that because a lot of people you think about entrepreneurship starting your own business doing something different than maybe what an employer may want you to do right so it doesn't always have a good connotation when it comes to employers trying to find employees. However, the corporate innovation piece, I would argue if an organization is not intentional with trying to innovate and disrupt themselves, that's an organization that might not be here in 10 years. You know what I mean? So uh, in terms of how I think entrepreneurs can move the needle in workplaces, you have curious individuals who are trying to make change, trying to have impact, and ultimately trying to innovate.
1: Yes. You know, I saw someone who had a passion for music and he was able to bring his passion for music into the role that he was doing at his company and so that increased his level of engagement it created sort of like an infectious uh culture or an infectious environment and I do believe that people with the entrepreneurial background they have the innate desire to solve problems. So when you say you know, you're know you're seeing the whole entrepreneurship being driven through the connection to curiosity, I love that. The corporate innovation piece is excellent because I've seen just programs that focus, like you said, on entrepreneurship. But I do think that the blend of corporate innovation and using entrepreneurship to make differences and changes in the workplace is where we are actually headed and where we need to be focused. So everyone that's listening, if you don't have a consultant who has that blend or that background like Andrew with entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, who can help you determine from your data and your metrics how to position yourself and move forward, you should definitely reach out to him. Give him a call. He's here to help, here to help you make your organization a much more enjoyable, a much more rewardable, a much more equitable space. For those that are curious in the organization and that may find that their curiosity is being stifled or snuffed out, what what word of encouragement can you give to them? Because I do remember when I worked in the corporate environment, although I had a lot of freedom, um, but I just can't imagine right now being in a space where my curiosity, my drive for different projects, um, for new things in different industries Would be harnessed or developed. Now, if somebody were to harness that and develop that, I could see myself definitely helping an organization go to their next level in that capacity. But for those that are in the workplace, they are employees and they're curious and they're hungry to solve problems, but they're not getting that sort of embrace or support. What advice do you give to those people?
0: Yeah, that can be a challenging spot to be in for sure. We've probably all been there at one point or another. What I would share are really two things, data and storytelling. How can you find the right metrics, the right data that may pique the interest of your leader or the other leaders that you're trying to influence, right? What are their goals? What are they they trying to focus on? What metrics do they measure closely? How do you leverage those things that they already know are important, have communicated are important, and connect that with whatever you're you're trying to do? Um, And then the storytelling piece makes it more human. Numbers matter, but how is this going to impact someone, right? Whether it's a hypothetical situation, give it a name, give the person a name, Kelly. If we don't do boom, 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 someone like Kelly wouldn't be able to be in our workplace anymore. And you have the data to back it up. It's very difficult for somebody to continue to push back on a recommendation when there's data that supports the argument of the person sharing it. It connects with something that person has already mentioned as a priority. And there's a story to touch the heart on top of it. And for whatever reason, that does not work. You're probably in the wrong place and you need to switch (laughs) over.
1: Wow. And there you have it, folks. Okay. This is what I'm talking about, Andrew. Hitting the nail on the head. Get better with your presentations. Learn how to be consultative at work. Learn your data metrics and storytelling. Andrew, I mean, so far you have given us so much to nibble on, chew on and digest. You talked about having intentional time for culture in a week for all leaders. I think this is a game changer, not just for 2023, but it's just the way forward. If we don't set an intention and we don't make it a priority, it will not get done. You also said to avoid becoming numb and you avoided becoming numb by getting exposure. You got your perspective shifted. However you want to get your perspective shifted, do that. Travel, talk to people, take a class, you know, get yourself exposed to something or someone that can help you to shift your perspective. Also, the third point is metrics, 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 metrics. You need to include the metrics in the conversation. And also entrepreneurship and corporate innovation is the way to go. It is the key to the organizational success for the future. And in an equitable workspace, everyone is at that starting point of simply feeling safe. Andrew, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to share with our audience?
0: Yeah, I want to leave everyone with a story on just how I would encourage people to move forward. Uh, the former uh, CEO of Yum Brands, they oversee uh, companies like, uh, I believe, Taco Bell and KFC. Uh, he used to work for Pepsi as a senior VP, and he asked one day, "Who's the best person in the organization at sales?" So he went down to one of their plants in Missouri and uh, basically got all the people around the table, and everyone's like, "It's Bob, without a doubt." Bob is the best person at sales and merchandising in the company. They all go around the table singing Bob's praises. And uh, David, who's the, who's the senior executive for Pepsi at the time, he looks over at Bob at the end of the table and he's sobbing, just crying uncontrollably. And he says, Bob, everyone's talking about how great of a job you, you do. Why are you crying? He said, I'm, I've been working at this company for over 30 years. I'm about to retire in a few weeks. And I had no idea people felt this way about me. And from that moment on, David made it a point to ensure that nobody in this organization would ever feel like Bob again. And if there's anything I can leave anyone with, is give your team air, appreciation, inspiration, recognition. Right? That is what we all need to go out and be doing, regardless of what topics we're focusing on or what we're trying to be intentional about. Give air to all the people you come into contact with. Um, That would be my, my parting message
1: wow just incredible thank you so much for your wisdom y'all heard him give the people some air (laughs) (laughs) y'all thank you so much for being on the show thank you for sharing your wisdom and until next time listeners take care and be well thanks for listening to the bridge to you podcast visit Solutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell or Instagram at Clear Communication Coach.
0: This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit MarketingPodcasts.net.